Thanks, Phil. Good evening. I'm Colin. Good to be with you. How are you? Good. Um, I'm welcoming you, but have you ever been like disowned? Like someone's completely disowned you, or you've disowned someone or something? So like a trivial, you see this all the time. A trivial example is people with dogs. If the dog's doing its business, like they completely disown it, like you know, pretending they're nothing to do with this thing on the end of the lead. I've done it. Um, but last November last year, November last year, um, brought a key moment of disowning for me. Of, uh, so this is uh, there's a picture here as well. Thanks, Tim. This is my uh, or was my registration certificate for APRA. Um, so this is basically means that I'm allowed to uh, X-ray you. You know, I'm registered to do that. Um, I've got another one as well. That, um, this is my EPA license to operate an ionizing radiation apparatus as well. So the trouble is, um, when you when you re-register for this, this was due to expire. Then in November, when you sign to re-register, you, you are declaring that you're doing a load of professional development study, like something like 20 hours a year or something. I couldn't, in good conscience, sign that, um, and I haven't got time to X-ray anybody anymore. Anyway. So like, I decided to leave work, but actually the reality of it caught up with me when I didn't register. So for the first time in 25 years, I'm no longer entitled to irradiate you. Okay, I'm no, no longer legally able to do that um, or x-ray anybody. I had to disown a key part of my identity. So I've been doing this since I was 18 years old. Um, I had to... Deny, I denied the rights and privileges that my, my professional qualifications and my experience entitled me to. Now, I'm not telling you that to say, like, you should all leave your jobs and, or whatever, or say, well, aren't I really great for giving up mine? But I'm telling you that because today we're looking at what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus. And at the heart of being a true disciple of Jesus is denying or disowning ourself. Not just don't disowning a, or denying a registration or a habit or chocolate, but disowning, denying our very selves. So as Mark said, we're at the end of, of this series in, in Luke, and we're up to chapter 9 now. Thanks for, to Phil for reading all of that. Um, there's about seven sermons worth in there. I'm not going to do that to you tonight, okay? We'll just zoom in on especially verses 18 to 27, and we'll dip into the rest. But really, we're concentrating on that following Jesus, how to follow Jesus bit. Because um, chapter 9 is a transition chapter, all right? So we began our series in chapter 4. Um, 4 to 6, we had Jesus' manifesto, so that he's come to proclaim um, that with his arrival, the kingdom of God's arrived. Okay, that He is God's chosen one, the Christ, or Messiah. Uh, who brings forgiveness of sins and so saves us. And then uh, more recently in chapter 7 and 8, we've begun to see the scope of that salvation. Um, Jesus gives a sneak preview that he will save all creation from all death, all disease, all evil. 
as well as forgiving sins. And important that we saw that this salvation is received by faith, uh, by believing and trusting in Jesus and putting that belief into practice, obeying Jesus. And so now in this transition chapter, if you like, the disciples, they finally get who Jesus is. But they don't quite get what it is that he's come to do. So we'll get into it. We'll have our first point about the title of the sermon. I've probably changed my mind since then. That, that, the title kind of covers the first point. but it, So we're more about following Jesus, finding life. Okay. Anyway, the man and his mission, first point. So first the man, who Jesus is. Jesus is God's son, God's chosen one, come with the authority to save. So in verse 20 there, uh, Jesus asked Peter, what about you? He asks, who do you say I am? Throughout this series, we've seen Jesus do amazing things, like things that only God can do. Healing miraculously, driving out evil spirits, raising the dead, forgiving sins. All of it pointing clearly to anyone humble enough to repent, turn from the sin. That Jesus is for, is for real when he says he is the one come to save. That he is worthy of us putting our faith in him. So, and through chapter 9 as well, we've got loads of, there's lots of ID markers about Jesus. Now, when I, when I was a radiographer and you have a patient, you have to check three markers of their identity to make sure you're zapping the right person. So, you know, the name, date of birth, address, something like that. So, there's lots of ID markers for Jesus being, he, being the chosen one in this chapter. Marker number one. So, so far, crowds have been coming to Jesus, but now, verses 1 to 6, Jesus shows that he comes with the authority of God, so much so that he can franchise this authority of God out to his disciples, and then they go out. So, verse 6, they set out and went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. So, that's marker number one. Then we get a little bit about Herod, don't we, verses 7 and 9. Poor, poor Herod, bless him. He's perplexed, it says. He can tell there's something about Jesus, but he's not quite sure. Verse 9, he says, who then is, is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. I think Herod's uh, an example of the Israel's establishment just not getting who Jesus is, not, not getting his identity. And Herod was like the puppet king of the of the Romans. He, he was probably just interested in whether or not Jesus was a threat to his sort of luxurious status quo. But what about you, Jesus asks? Who do you say I am? Uh, marker number two of Jesus' identity, verses 10 to 17. It's easy to get used to the miracles of Jesus, isn't it? Like that we've we known him, lots of us known him for years and years. But I think the recording in the in the Gospels, because they're just extraordinary. Just let it sink in. Jesus feeds over 5,000 people, just with some lads' sardine sangers. And there's 12 baskets left over. It's just incredible. Now, the disciples, verse 13, they've not yet grasped the scope of Jesus' authority over everything because uh, they reckon they still need to go shopping to feed this crowd. But Jesus provides for the crowd, again showing authority over creation and the natural order. 
confirming who he is. Jesus has got a pretty impressive CV so far. A pretty good resume, hasn't he, for miracles and things. Herod knows it means something. And Jesus is curious. What does everybody else think? Who do they think he is? Verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in, a, in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowd say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. So Messiah, the Greek version of that word is Christ. or uh, It's not Jesus' surname. It, it means anointed one. One specially chosen by God to be his king. Who come to save God's people. Put everything right. Finally, the disciples have got who Jesus is. What about you, Jesus asks. Who do you say I am? Um, if you're going for a job, it's all very well having good work experience on your resume, isn't it? But you also need good references. Well, Jesus has got the best references. So if we skip forward to verses 28 to 36, identity marker number three. Okay. Jesus is up a mountain with Peter, John and James, three of the um, disciples. And they catch a glimpse of the heavenly glory of Jesus giving them further confirmation of who he is. So verse 29, as Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. And as if that isn't enough to confirm who Jesus is, who should turn up? Verse 30, two men, only Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. So there's our ID marker number four, Moses and Elijah. Moses representing the law and Elijah representing the prophets and probably more thinking about end times as well. They pop in for a chat and they talk with Jesus about his mission. We'll get into his mission in a minute. Um, But for now, it's just more confirmation of who Jesus is. And just in case there's any doubt left at all, they suddenly find themselves in a cloud. Now in the Bible, finding yourself in a cloud is a surefire sign that God is turning up in person. Making a personal appearance. Uh, Verse 34, they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Not surprising. Verse 35, a voice from the cloud saying, came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. So there we go, ID marker number five, the ultimate confirmation. God himself has turned up in person to vouch for Jesus, to tell us that he is God's chosen one. So this is the identity of this man, Jesus, the son of God, God's chosen one. Herod doesn't get it. Jesus' miracles and authority show it, and the law, the prophets, and God himself 
confirm it. But what about you, Jesus asks. Who do you say I am? So that's the man. But what about his mission? What's Jesus' mission? So just imagine for a moment, right? You don't know how this story goes. That you know, If you go back through Luke's gospel looking for more, I guess, ID markers for who Jesus is, you'll find that they get increasingly amazing and spread out to more and more people. So imagine being one of the disciples living in, living in this story, in this trajectory. Where do you think this is heading? Well, what do you think Jesus is going to do next? Probably something even more glorious, even more amazing, with even more people. Some, something that's going to bring God's kingdom in a new, victorious way, maybe. You're really starting to believe that Jesus is going to win. And so you're expecting uh, maybe an inspirational pep talk, a motivating mission statement. Verse 21. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this, that he's the Messiah, not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. It's like the needle rips off the record as Jesus reveals how he will win by losing his life. Now the disciples won't really understand this until after Jesus' resurrection on the road to Emmaus. But here's Jesus' mission statement. Early doors, out in the open, cards on the table. The path to glory is going to be through rejection, through suffering, and through death. So that's the man and his mission. But what does this mean for following Jesus? So our second point, following Jesus. We've seen in previous weeks that we're called to hear Jesus' words and to obey them, to believe them, to put into practice. But actually, he's not given us all that much to obey, has he? Like, stuff to do. Most of it's been about believing in him. So how do we follow Jesus? How do we put believing in Jesus into practice? Following him. Well, we do that by following Jesus' example. We respond to salvation by copying the example that brought us salvation. So verse 23. Then Jesus said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self. Whoever is ashamed of me in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory, and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So we're to take up our cross, we're to lose our life and not be ashamed. 
That word deny in verse 23, as I said near the start, is, it also has a sense of disown. So it's the same word that is used of Peter later on when he denies Jesus three times. Deny, disown, same sort of thing. Jesus isn't being a misery gutsy. He's not saying, think of all the things you like. You know, you love chocolate or, I don't know, whatever it is that you like. And then, think of all the things you like and then give those things up. It's not about giving up chocolate or Facebook for Lent. It's, Jesus is talking about putting to death, crucifying, selfish ambition and sin. Now at this point, preachers will often wheel out some intimidated example of a famous missionary or a persecuted Christian who have literally denied their life for Jesus, as in to the point of death. And they're great examples for us. But notice verse 23. Jesus says this to all the disciples. And he says to take up our cross daily. So this is for all Christians all the time. See, following Jesus is upside down and inside out. Upside down and inside out. I'll explain that. So upside down, you see in verse 48, Jesus says that the least are the greatest in Jesus' kingdom. Because following Jesus means imitating his salvation. And Jesus, God's own son, the greatest man who's ever lived, became a servant. Jesus didn't triumph by taking power, but by serving at great cost. Jesus won by losing everything. So to follow Jesus is it's an entirely alternate way of being human. Choosing to lose our life for Jesus instead of trying to save our life. Because we try to save our life in lots of different ways. We, we try to give our life meaning through Things that are good things, but we try to give our lives meaning through relationships and work. We try to make ourselves more significant by looking down on others. We try to give ourselves security with money and power. We pursue popularity at the expense of integrity. But Jesus says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, forfeit themselves. So how do we lose our life for Jesus to save it? How do we lose our life? Well, none of this makes sense without the cross. Unless we see that Jesus rescues, rescues us and brings, us, brings about the glorious salvation through denying himself, losing our life seems a bit daft. We need God to reveal to us, like he did to the disciples eventually, that Jesus' path to glory goes through the self-denying suffering of the cross. There's a couple of verses in Galatians that are helpful explaining this. Um, Galatians 2.20, I think that's, I think there's a slide for that. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me 
and gave himself for me. And 6.14, Galatians 6.14 says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Living for myself, my sin, is what Jesus paid for on the cross. So denying myself, taking up my cross, means putting to death selfish ambition and the sin that Jesus paid for and doing that every day. Losing our life for Jesus means putting him in the driving seat for everything. So following Jesus is upside down and it's also inside out. See, how can we, this is a tall order, isn't it? How can we find the strength and the resolve to lose our life for Jesus? Well, by faith, Jesus transforms us by his spirit from the inside out and empowers us to live for him. So 1 Corinthians 15.10, puts it like this. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me it was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So God promises that as we follow Jesus, he'll be at work in us to help us lose our life for Jesus. We'll work harder and harder at it. But even that working harder and harder at it will be, come from the grace of God at work in us. So instead of trying to change ourselves from the outside in, trying to do more good stuff to change our heart, believing in Jesus means that God will change our hearts from the inside out. So how do we apply these verses about following Jesus, about losing our life? I mean, it's, it's a bit hard because the application is your whole life. Everything about it, live for Jesus, not for yourself. In fact, disowning yourself and what you want for the sake of Jesus. So let's focus on the motivation for losing our life for Jesus. And it's grace. By grace, Jesus gave up everything for us, even while we were still his enemies. Jesus has done it all. So we no longer need to save ourselves. We no longer need to prove ourselves or win something for ourselves. We're safe, secure, loved and accepted in Jesus. And the more we deny ourselves, the more that truth sinks in and grows in us and eats away at sinful, selfish motivations. Jesus says, whoever loses their life for me will save it. So on to our last point, finding life. Let's just dwell on what Jesus has said is going to happen again. Verse 22, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. In all this, in Jesus' betrayal, his death and resurrection, all the glory of God is on display. 
His love is on display as Jesus shows how completely other person-centered he is, denying, disowning himself. God's justice is on display as sin is punished, our sins are punished. Grace is on display as that punishment is taken for us, bringing forgiveness of sins. And hope is on display as Jesus is raised to life on the third day, just as we'll be raised to life. Our life is saved for eternity in glorious peace with God as we lose it for Jesus' sake. Now throughout this chapter, bubbling under the surface in chapter 9, there are echoes of the Exodus. So I don't know if you're familiar with the book of Exodus. It's a great story. It's got promises, persecution, midwives, Moses, beatings, bush, plagues, Passover, sea, song, whinging water, moaning manna, Sinai speaking, covenant calf, calf, tablets, tabernacle, grace, glory. Remember all that? That's my, I've got an Exodus chant. I can teach you that afterwards if you're interested. It's a song from Prozen. Anyway, read Exodus. It's a great story. It's a really good story. But this story about Jesus is even greater and kind of fulfills that. So I'll just point out to you how Exodus is under the surface in chapter 9. It's pretty interesting. So, where are we? Verses 1 to 6. So, did you notice the sense of urgency? Verse 3. Take nothing for the journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. It's it's kind of like urgent rush about it. And this parallels the instructions for the original Passover and celebrating Passover. That's when uh, God's people escaped judgment through they'd kill a lamb, sacrifice the lamb, and that took the place of each firstborn son. And in the instructions for that, there's a similar sense of urgency of, of being ready for a hasty escape. Uh, so that's one bit. And then in the feeding the 5,000, if, if you were um, a, a Jew, Jewish person at the time Jesus is saying this, this is happening, there'd be loads of echoes of Exodus in this for you. Um, so this recalls um, that escaped from Egypt, um, gone this, this amazing miracle, gone through the, through the sea, the Egyptian being killed. And how do they respond? They start moaning about how there's no food or water. So uh, they're in Exodus 16, they're in the desert. And there's loads of bits of this uh, feeding the 5,000 story that, that riffs off that. So it was evening, um, it was in a remote place. There's the command, you give them something to eat. Um, it was a large number of people. And just as God provided for those sinful, whinging Israelites, so Jesus provides for these 5,000 plus who trust him. Uh, next, verse 31. Um, when Moses and Elijah turn up, they talk to Jesus about his departure. And I think your Bibles have a little footnote with that. Because that word departure is exodus or Exodus, because that's what Exodus means, departure. So they're talking about Jesus, Exodus, um, and what's coming up in Jerusalem. So basically they're confirming that Jesus' mission of suffering, 
death and resurrection, will work like that sacrificial lamb in Exodus. So bringing about redemption from slavery, not from Egypt, but from sin, by taking on himself God's judgment. And then uh, last Exodus bit, verse 41. Jesus calls the disciples, you unbelieving and perverse generation. Sounds a bit harsh, doesn't it? But it's a quote from the song that Moses sings at the end of Exodus, just before he dies, referring to the Exodus generation. He sings lots of things about God. But when it comes to the line about the Exodus generation, this is it. You unbelieving and perverse generation. Because their response to being rescued from slavery had been pretty much persistent lack of belief and disobedience at at every point. So there's all that Exodus stuff bubbling under the surface. So what, I hear you ask. So what? Well, all this points to Jesus fulfilling the promises of the Old Testament. Jesus fulfills everything that the Exodus pointed to. Uh, Exodus is an incredible story, but Jesus' story is even greater. Because Jesus losing his life for us delivers us out of slavery to sin and its consequences into the promised land of salvation, peace with God. And as we lose our life for Jesus in the here and now, we're redeemed daily into a life of eternal significance, living for God's kingdom in the here and now, freed from the slavery of trying to save ourselves. So that's the end of our series. And I hope through this series, you've seen for the first time, or afresh, who Jesus is, the real deal, the chosen one of God. That he came bringing forgiveness of sin, bringing peace with God for anyone, anyone who will repent and trust in him. And that the salvation he brings is complete. And I hope you've seen that Jesus is worth trusting. He's worth losing your life for. Because he loved you enough to lose everything for you. And I hope that you find life by giving up your life to follow Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for this um, opportunity we've had to hang about in Luke's Gospel and uh, meet Jesus afresh and see just who he is, how great he is and how great the salvation he brings us. Um, Pray for all of us um, following him. Please help us to keep daily working out what it means to take up our cross and follow him, um, to deny ourselves, to lose our life for his sake. Um, Please keep transforming our hearts to uh, do that from the inside out and to live that upside down way. Uh, Thank you for the grace of Jesus. Thank you that he lost his life so that we might live. Amen.